chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. Verses 18 to 23. And the disciples of John showed him all of these things. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or are we to look for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or are we to look for another? And in the same hour he cured many of their infirmities, and plagues, and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus, answering, said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Burkett notes, About the time of our Savior's appearing in the world, there was a general expectation of a great prince that should come out of Judea and govern all nations. This prince the Jews called the Messiah, or the Anointed, and waited for his appearance. Accordingly, when John the Baptist appeared in the quality of an extraordinary prophet, the Jews sent to know of him whether he was the Messiah or not. John 1.19 He answered that he was not, but only the harbinger and forerunner of the Messiah, so that it was very evident that it was not for John's own information that he sent two of his disciples to Christ to know whether he was the Messiah or not. For John was assured of it himself by a voice from heaven at our Savior's baptism. Matthew 3, 13-17. But it was for his disciples' satisfaction that he sent them to Jesus, because John's disciples were unwilling to acknowledge Christ to be the Messiah, out of a great deal for the honor of him, their master. They were not willing to own any person greater than John, their master, lest such an acknowledgment should eclipse and cloud him. From whence we may note how the judgments of the best of men are very apt to be biased, or perverted by faction or interest. No doubt John's disciples were good men, and no doubt their master had often told them, as he did others, that he was not the Messiah. Yet they will not believe their own master when they apprehend him to speak against their own interests. For they knew that they must rise and fall in their reputation and esteem, as their master did. Therefore, that John's disciples might receive full satisfaction from Christ, he sends two of his disciples to him to hear his doctrine and see his miracles. For John, perceiving his disciples to be ill-affected towards our Savior, and hearing them speak with some envy of his miracles, he sent them to him, that being eyewitnesses of what he did, they might be convinced who he was. Observe next the way and means which our Savior takes to convince and satisfy John's disciples that he was the true Messiah. He appeals to the miracles wrought by himself, and submits those miracles to the judgment and examination of their senses. Go and show John the miracles which you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear. Christ was all this in a literal and spiritual sense also. He was an eye of understanding to the ignorant, a foot of power to the weak. He opened an ear in the deaf hearts to receive the word of life, and the poor receive and embrace the gospel. Miracles are the highest attestation and the greatest external confirmation and evidence that can be given to the truth and divinity of any doctrine. Now our Savior's miracles, for their nature, were divine and godlike, 
They were healing and beneficial to mankind, freeing men from the greater calamities of human life. For their number, they were many. For the manner of their operation, they were publicly wrought in the sight and view of multitudes of people. To free them from all suspicion of fraud and imposture, he wrought them before his enemies, as well as in the presence of his friends and followers. And this was not done once or twice, or in one place, but at several times and in several places, wherever he came. And this was for a long time, even for three years and a half, so that our blessed Savior had all the attestations that miracles can give to evidence himself the true and promised Messiah. Verse 22. To the poor the gospel is preached. Burkett notes. The poor hear and receive the gospel. See Matthew 11.5. Note that all along, in our Savior's time and since, the poor of the world have been more disposed to hear and embrace the gospel than other men. And the reason of it are these. 1. Because the poor have no worldly interest to engage them to reject Christ and his gospel. The high priest, the scribes, and Pharisees had a plain worldly interest to engage them to oppose Christ and his doctrine. But the poor were free from these encumbrances and temptations. They had nothing to lose. Therefore, our Savior's doctrine went down more easily with them, because it did not contradict their interest, as it did the interest of those who had great possessions. Those that are poor and enjoy little of the good things of this life are willing to entertain the glad tidings of happiness in another life. Such as are in a state of misery here are glad to understand it shall be well with them hereafter and are willing to listen to the good news of a future happiness. Whereas the rich, who have had their consolation here, are not much concerned with what will become of them afterwards. Verse 23. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Burkett notes, No doubt our Savior uttered these words with particular respect in reference to John's disciples, who, out of an extraordinary zeal for the honor of their master, were prejudiced against our Savior. But the import of the words does show that there are many to whom Christ is a rock of offense. The Jews were offended at the meanness of his extraction, and at the poverty of his parents, at the lowness of his breeding, at his suffering condition. From their tradition, they expected the Messiah should be a temporal prince, whereas the prophets declared he should be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, be despised and put to death. Thus at this day many are offended at Christ. Some are offended at the asserted divinity of his person and the meritoriousness of his satisfaction. Some are offended at the sublimity of his doctrine, others at the sanctity and strictness of his laws. Some are offended at the free dispensation of his grace, others that the terms of Christianity are very hard and lay too great a restraint upon human nature. But blessed is he, says Christ, that shall not be offended at me intimating that such as, instead of being offended at Christ, do believe in him and ground their expectations of heaven and salvation solely upon him, are in a happy and blessed condition. Blessed is he that shall not be offended in me. Verses 24 through 27. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went out ye into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in the king's court. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet. Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. 
This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Burkett notes, Our Savior, having given, as we may suppose, full satisfaction to John's disciples and sent them away, he enters upon a large commendation of John himself, where we have observable, one, the persons whom he commended John before, not his own disciples, but before the multitude. For John's disciples had too high an opinion of their master already, insomuch that they envied our Savior for overshadowing their master. John 7.26 Behold Christ baptizes, and all men come unto him. It was a great eyesore to John's disciples that Christ had more hearers and followers than their master. Therefore, not before John's disciples, but before the multitude, is John commended. For as John's disciples had too high, so the multitude had too low an opinion of John, possibly because of his imprisonment and suffering. There was a time when the people had high thoughts of John's person and ministry. But being now clouded with suffering, they disesteemed and undervalued him. Learn hence how vain it is for any man, but especially for the ministers of the gospel, to value themselves by popular applause. The people condemn today what they admired yesterday. He who today is cried up, tomorrow is trodden down. The word and ministers are the same, but this proceeds from the fickleness and inconstancy of the people. Nothing is so mutable as the mind of man, nothing so variable as the opinion of the multitude. Observe, too, the time when our Savior thus commended John, when he was cast into prison by Herod. Not when he was in his prosperity, when the people flocked after him, when he preached at court and was reverenced by Herod, but when the giddy multitude had forsaken him, when he was disgraced at court and had preached himself into a prison. Now it is that Christ proclaims his worth, maintains his honor, and tells the people that the world was not worthy of such a preacher. Learn hence that Christ will evermore stand by and stick fast unto his faithful ministers when all the world forsakes them. Let the world slight and despise them at their pleasure, yet Christ will maintain their honor and support their cause. As they will bear a faithful witness to Christ, so Christ will bear witness to their faithfulness for him. Observe 3. The Commendation Itself Our Savior commends John for four things. For his constancy, for his sobriety, for his humility, for his gospel ministry. 1. For his constancy. He was not a reed shaken with the wind, that is, a man of unstable and unsettled judgment, but fixed and steady. 2. For his sobriety, austerity, and high degree of mortification and self-denial. He was no delicate, voluptuous person, but grave, sober, and severe. He was mortified to the glory and honor, to the ease and pleasure of the world. John wrought no miracles, but his conversation was almost miraculous, and as effectual as miracles to prevail upon the people. 3. For his humility. John might once have been what he would. The people were ready to cry him up for the Messiah, the Christ of God. But John's humble and lowly spirit refuses all. He confessed and denied not, saying, I am not the Christ, but a poor minister of his, willing but not worthy to do him the meanest service. This will commend our ministry to the consciences of our people, when we seek not our own glory, but the glory of Christ. For our Savior commends John for his clear preaching the gospel, and for his making known the coming of the Messiah to the people. He was more than a prophet, because he pointed out Christ more clearly and fully than any of the prophets before him. 
The ancient prophets held Christ afar off, but John saw him face to face. They prophesied of him. He pointed at him, saying, This is he. The clearer any ministry is in discovering of Christ, the more excellent and useful it is. Verse 28. For I say unto you, Among those that are born of woman, there is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Burkett notes, Our Savior having highly commended John in the former verses, here he sets bounds to the honor of his ministry, adding that though John was greater than all the prophets that went before him, seeing more of Christ than all of them, yet he saw less than those that came after him. The meanest gospel minister that preaches Christ as come is to be preferred before all the old prophets who prophesied of Christ to come. That minister who sets forth the life and death, resurrection and ascension of Christ is greater in the kingdom of heaven, that is, has a higher office in the church and a more excellent ministry than all of the prophets, yea, than John himself. The excellency of a ministry consists in the light and clearness of it. Now, though John's light did exceed all that went before him, yet it felt short of them that came after him. And thus, he that was least in the kingdom of grace on earth, much more, he that was least in the kingdom of glory in heaven, was greater than John. See note on Matthew 10, 11, verses 29 and 30. And all the people that heard him, and the publicans, justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. Burkett notes, these words are our Savior's further commendation of John the Baptist. He tells us that John had two sorts of hearers. One, the common people and publicans. Two, the Pharisees and lawyers. And declares the different effect which John's ministry had upon these two different sorts of persons. As to the former, the common people and the publicans, the common people were accounted by the Jewish doctors as the dregs of mankind, an ignorant and rude mob. The publicans were esteemed notoriously wicked, guilty of great injustice, oppression, and extortion. Yet these vile persons were converted sooner than the knowing men of the time, the self-justifying Pharisees and lawyers. For it is said, the publicans were baptized of John and justified God. That is, they looked upon John as a prophet sent of God. They owned his ministry, received his message, and submitted to his baptism. Those who believe the message that God sendeth and obey it justify God. They that do not believe and obey accuse and condemn God. But of the others it is said, namely of the Pharisees and lawyers, that they rejected the counsel of God against themselves, that is, the revealed will of God, refusing to be baptized of him. This rejecting the counsel of God we are guilty of when we have low and undervaluing thoughts of Christ and his gospel and when we are ashamed in times of persecution to own and profess him, when we stop our ears to the voice of his ministers and messengers, when we submit not ourselves to the reasonable laws and commands of Christ. And this rejection of Christ at the great day will render our condition worse than the condition of heathens that never heard of a Savior, than the condition of Jews which crucified their Savior, yes, than the condition of devils for whom a Savior never was intended. Lord, where shall we appear if we either reject or neglect thy great salvation? The chief thing then observable here is this, 
that in rejecting John's baptism and ministry, they are said to reject the counsel of God towards themselves. That is, the gracious design of God in calling them to repentance by John's ministry, by which refusal they declared that they approved not of God's counsel as just and right in calling them to repentance, who were such zealots for the law and so unblameable in their conversation, that it became a proverb amongst them that if but two persons went to heaven, one of them must be a Pharisee. They therefore judged it an incongruous thing to call such righteous persons to repentance as they took themselves to be, and to threaten them with ruin who were so dear to God. But the publicans and common people, being conscious to themselves of their sin and guilt, did approve of this counsel which God sent them by his messenger, and submitted to this baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, to which God, by the Baptist, now called them. Verses 31 to 35. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace, and calling one to another, and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man is come, eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold a gluttonous man, and a wine-biber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior in these words describes the perverse humor of the Pharisee, whom nothing could allure to the embracing of the gospel neither John's ministry nor Christ's. This our Savior sets forth two ways, allegorically and properly. By way of allegory, he compares them to sullen children, whom nothing would please, neither mirth nor mourning. If their fellows piped before them, they would not dance. If they sang mournful songs to them, they would not lament. That is, the Pharisees were of such censorious and capricious humor that God himself could not please them, although he used a variety of means and methods in order to that end. Next, our Lord plainly interprets this allegory by telling them that John came to them neither eating nor drinking, that is, not so freely and plentifully as other men, being a very austere and mortified man, both in his diet and habit, all which was designed by God to bring the Pharisees to repentance and amendment of life. But instead of this, they censure him for having a devil, because he delighted in solitude and was not so free in conversation as some men, according to the ancient observation that he that delighteth in solitude is either an angel or a devil, either a wild beast or a god. John being thus rejected, Christ himself comes to them, who being of a free and familiar conversation, not shunning the society of the worst of men, no, not of the Pharisees themselves, but complying with their customs and accompanying them innocently at their feasts. Yet the freedom of our Savior's conversation displeased them as much as John's reservedness of temper, for they cry, Behold a man gluttonous, a friend of publicans and sinners. Christ's affability toward sinners, they account an approbation of their sins, and his sociable disposition, looseness and luxury. Learn hence that the faithful and zealous ministers of Christ, let their temper and converse be what it will, cannot please the enemies of religion and the haters of the power of godliness. Neither John's austerity nor Christ's familiarity could gain upon the Pharisees. It is the duty of the ministers of God, in the course of their ministry, 
to seek to please all men for their good. But after all our endeavors to please all, if we strenuously oppose the errors and vices of the times, we shall please but very few. But if God and conscience be of the number of those few, we are safe and happy. Observe, too, it has been the old policy of the devil that he might hinder the success of the gospel to fill the minds of persons with an invincible prejudice against the ministers and dispensers of the gospel. Here the Pharisees are prejudiced unreasonably both against John and against Christ, that the success of both their ministries must be frustrated and disappointed. Observe, three, that after all the scandalous reproaches cast upon the Christian religion and the ministers and professors of it, such as our wisdom's children, wise and good men, will justify religion, that is, approve it in their judgments, honor it in their discourses, and adorn it in their lives. Wisdom is justified of all her children. <laughs>